We are in week five now in this series in the Lord's Prayer. And each week what we're doing in this prayer is we're taking a line and we're pulling it out and we're getting up close and personal with this line. We're investigating it. We're exploring it. We're looking with wonder at what's before us. And the line that we arrive at today is on earth as it is in heaven. This line, on earth as it is in heaven, stirs up a war in you. And here's why. This line, on earth as it is in heaven, is connected to the three previous lines. Hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, and your will be done. When you pray for all of those things that are way they are in heaven to come down upon the earth, here's what it means. You now have to give up your will for his. You now have to give up your own kingdom for his kingdom. And you have to now give up your own glory for his glory. And whether you like it or not, that's what this prayer does. And if you're going to pray this prayer authentically, it will stir a war up within you. And there's no way around it. There's a battle happening in this prayer. And what it ends up coming down to is the war begins when you pray this prayer. And the prayer is getting you to this place where you will finally surrender. Surrender to his glory, surrender to his kingdom, and surrender to his will. And that's what we're going to look at today. God bless you. Matthew 6, verses 9 through 13. This is God's word to us. Jesus says, pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we've also forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. All right. By the way, today we're doing Q&A again. So it's back. We took a break for about a month. So if you have questions as I'm going through the sermon, there should be a number on the screen. You can text your question to that number. If you have a question, make sure you ask it. Otherwise, I'm going to finish up here and there's going to be an awkward silent moment while I'm waiting for you to get your questions in. So go ahead and get them in as we're going. So the first point we're going to look at is your glory, not mine. The, the line, hallowed be your name, when it's connected to as it is in heaven, here's what it means. Hallowed be your name has to do with the glory of God. And it has to do with the fullness of the name of God in heaven. Like all of what God represents, who he is, what he has done, his majesty, his glory, his wonder. Like you wonder at him, his magnificence, all of it, like the fully encompassing God in heaven, known on the earth. And when you pray that prayer and it is answered, it means that God begins to be glorified in the world around you and in you. And this is what makes you begin to say something like this. God, there is no one and nothing like you. It's what makes you bow your knees. It's what makes you say, I'm yours. Take me. Do with me whatever you want. This is the genius of, do you know what a catechism is? A catechism is a question about God or the Bible with an answer that goes along with it. So there's this catechism called the Westminster Catechism. And it asks, the, the first question it asks, first questions are always important. It says, what is the chief end of man? In other words, what is the purpose of mankind? Why are we here? Here's the answer. To glorify God and enjoy him forever. 
to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And here's what that means. When you go to work every day, why do you go to work? To glorify God. When you decide you want to get married, why do you get married? To glorify God. When you have children and you raise them up the best that you can and all the mistakes you're making along the way, why do you do it? Why are you working so hard at this? For the glory of God. Everything is done for the glory of God. When you, in my ethics class in seminary, there was a question. Is like, why do you brush your teeth? And the answer is for the glory of God. Also, so that the people next to you don't smell your bad breath. So thank you for brushing your teeth this morning, but also for the glory of God. That's the main purpose, in fact. So we think about this, and what we begin to realize then is we are instruments that, when plucked, sing out the glory of God. And so we need to ask this question, why does God want to be glorified? Why is this so important for him? Because, to be honest with you, a lot of people, it does something. When, when God says, glorify my name, we think about that God wants glory so bad, it makes us feel a little uncomfortable. So we need to answer this question, why does God want so much glory? When, when I was a young buck, I took this group of college students to a conference. And at this conference, there was a guy there named John Piper. And he gave this talk about the glory of God. And then there was a bunch of us leaders that got together and someone went up on the stage and they asked the leaders, they said, how many of you, how many of you have your lives changed now in response to that talk? Half the room raised their hand. And then the speaker said to the leaders, how many of you have no idea what he just said? The other half of the room raised their hand. And so what did he say that was so both life-changing and confusing? Well, he started the, the talk like this. Is God a megalomaniac? A megalomaniac is someone who's obsessed with their own glory. And his answer was yes, because he loves us. And here's, here's what that means. God is passionate or obsessed with his glory because he loves you because of this reason. The thing that, if, if you will just be enveloped by his glory, do you know what's going to happen to you? You will have never-ending joy surround you that you can't escape. If you're surrounded by his glory, you will have a peace that is beyond all understanding. If you're surrounded by his glory, then you're going to have a strength in you that looks out at danger ahead, and you're going to be bold and brave to go and face it. So his glory is everything that you need. Your struggling marriage needs the glory of God. Your children need the glory of God. In fact, you know what your children need better than good grades and better than to be great in their sports? The glory of God. I don't know if you know this, but it's true. Um, and you know that annoying sin in your life that's not going away? You know the one I'm talking about? This is when everyone's like, David, you are talking right to me. Do you know what I've been doing? Well, no, I just know humanity and I know what we're like. And I know you're terrified for people to find out your sins. Well, do you know what you need to stop? The glory of God. Because it's really hard to keep sinning when you are surrounded by the glory of God. So how do you get it? 
Oh, and, and you know, when you feel like a failure, you need the glory of God. When you feel unloved, you need the glory of God. So how do you get this? How do you get the glory? How do you get enveloped by it? And the answer is you have to stop fighting for your own glory and surrender to his. Surrender, that's right. Why is it hard for you to surrender to his glory? I'm going to tell you why. Because you want your own. And I want you to know why you want glory. Because inside of you has this desire to be deeply loved and admired. Like in a absolutely ridiculous way to be loved and admired. At your core, what you want is to be known by the people in this room and for all of them to say, I love you and I approve of you and I think you're amazing and I think you're awesome. Maybe even worshiped by people in this room like your spouse, or maybe that one person out there. And what you really want, a group of people to think you're amazing, or just one person, or the whole world to know that you're amazing. I'm in the middle of watching this documentary about Sylvester Stallone, and he talked about how essentially his parents didn't have this admiration or love for him. And so he finds satisfaction of those desires through his fans. And he said, I wish I could make it stop, but I don't know how to make it stop. And we're all a bit like this. We're looking to be loved in a really ridiculous way. And you wonder, why do you help people? Well, maybe so people will love you. Why do you do good? Well, it might be because you want to be worthy of love. I'm not saying it's not good to do good, but why are you doing it? And... You know when you or people that you know, like, they're kind of annoying on purpose. Like, they're doing it on purpose. Maybe you do it. I do this a lot. Or I used to do it, especially in high school. Um, why do people do that? I'm going to tell you why. Because they're terrified of being rejected. So if they could do it on purpose, if they could make sure that everybody thinks that they're just a really bad person on purpose or an annoying person, what they've just done is projected, protected themselves because they're not letting people see who they really are. Because if they did and then people rejected it, that would hurt way too bad. But if they could put up a protective wall by being a bit of a jerk, well then maybe they're protecting themselves actually from being rejected. Maybe they're just incredibly scared to be rejected. So they make sure it happens so it's not the real them that's being rejected. Maybe you do that, maybe you don't. Now, when we think about all this, maybe you're thinking, David, I'm not sure if I actually need to be ridiculously loved and admired. And here would be my, my answer to you why you feel that way. Because you have turned your desire for it all the way down as a coping mechanism. So what Christianity is doing is saying, you have this desire to be loved and admired. Don't turn it down. Turn it all the way up to 10. And if you'll turn it all the way up to 10, then you're going to stop looking for it in this world, and you're going to reach for the world beyond, and you're going to begin to reach for God, and then you're finally going to reach for him, and you're going to reach for the Christ, and you're going to see all that he's done because he loves you, and then you're going to say, this is everything I've been looking for. C.S. Lewis uh, gives this sermon. C.S. Lewis doesn't preach a lot. He's not really a preacher. Um, but he gives this sermon called The Weight of Glory. And it's one of these sermons you have to read about five times to figure out what he's saying. And once you re figure it out, it's like, this is the, it's one of my favorite sermons ever. Let's just say that. And towards the end of the sermon, 
he says, he starts talking about when we enter into glory. And he says something like this. We become famous to God. It's like we feel famous to him. It's, it's a little bit of a dangerous thing to say, but I don't think you should pull off of this. So let me explain what happens. So when we're finally enveloped fully in the glory of God, what happens is we enter into his presence and we look at him and we say, there is nothing like you. You are the most magnificent thing I've ever seen. All of your, like all of his beauty overwhelms you. All of his magnificence make you go back like this. All, all of his, well, he's just really awesome. I don't have the words for it. And when you're looking at him, all of a sudden, then he locks eyes with you. And when he does, he looks at you in such a way that he looked at his one and only firstborn son. Because of your faith, he sees you with the same intensity of this ridiculous love and admiration that he has for his son. And when that happens to you, it melts you to the core. And you say, oh, everything's going to be okay. I'm loved. And this is enough. This is enough. And it's like you're cured. It's like in an instant you're transformed. Something comes alive in you that wasn't there before. And we get glimmers of this when we become Christians. And we can, as we grow as Christians, we get more and more glimmers. And every glimmer that you get, that's the thing that's growing you. When you pray this prayer, you are surrendering and saying, I will no longer work to get glory from God. I will simply receive his love and admiration as a gift. You lay down this project of getting everyone to think that you're amazing because you've heard from someone who really truly matters, the God of the universe, that he thinks you're amazing. And it's like, I'm not saying that just to say it. I'm saying it because it's a real thing that happened. It is promised to the Christian because of faith in Christ. And just receive it. This is what's going to heal your marriage. This is what's going to heal your heart. It's going to be what heals your friendships. And it's going to change the way you look at people. Because you're going to look at someone who's an angry person. And you're going to see them and you're going to, and you're going to pity them. Because it's, you can't be angry when you're surrounded by the glory of God. All it gives you is unending joy. Someone who's depressed, who's scared, who's anxious, who's an overworker, who's a lazy underworker, who is uh, restless all of the time. All of these things, you know what we need? His glory. It's the answer to every single problem of the world and in your heart. This is, in a lot of ways, what I've devoted my life to and preaching to. Like, my goal, I don't care if you remember something I said today. Tomorrow, if you forget it, I don't care. You know what I care about? That you see the excellencies of Christ, and that's it. And if you leave today seeing that, then I'm happy. And if you didn't, then I have utterly failed you in every single way. And I have these list of values that I live by that I try to look at on a regular basis. And at the end of them, I, I ask, what is the what, what is the enemy that I'm fighting against? And there I have written a dull and boring understanding of God. 
because I think God is the most exciting thing that's ever happened to you in your life. So just go explore him. See his glory, and it will change you into a kingdom bringer. And this is our next point. Not your kingdom, but his. His kingdom, not mine. Second point. When we pray for his kingdom to come, what we're praying for is the good life. And when you think of the, you have this vision of what the good life is, and you have this strategy or this way or this path that you think is going to give you the good life. And what, what you end up doing and what we all do is we begin to build an empire around ourselves so that we can stay in control, so that we can have power, so that we can have comfort, so that we can have the love of people. And so we begin to do these things. We begin to scramble around like these ants and we're trying to get enough money in our bank account. We're trying to get the house that we're chasing, the car that we're chasing, the relationships that we're chasing, a posse of friends who have our backs. We, we are chasing a status and then we want to get to retirement and then we want to leave money behind to our children and our children's children and all of these perhaps are good things, but why are you doing them? Do you think it will give you the good life? Is there a wall that you're trying to build up so that you could be the king of your kingdom and so you can then be in control and then you can make sure you're happy? And is it, is it working? We all have a strategy of how we're going to do this. It looks a little different. And one of the ways to know your own strategy is to just look at yourself and know yourself. And there's a degree that in order for you to know yourself, you have to know God. And in order for you to know God, you have to know yourself. Yes, thank you, Lincoln. He's my man here, just like giving me amen. So you guys could join him if you'd like. So, um, so for me, I look at myself, and I'm a bit of a, like a self-examiner. And I, I, here, here's what you need to know. If you are a self-examiner like me, for every look that you look at yourself, take five looks at Christ at least. Because you'll get in your head about yourself if you don't. You need to remember about grace. So when I look at myself, and I, I you know, there's these, all these personality profile things you can take. So it, it, when I take them, the, my, my Myers-Briggs says I'm an ENTP, which, which means um, at times I'm probably annoying because there's a, I, I'm called a debater, which means I'm going to see a whole bunch of things from a bunch of different perspectives, and I'll debate about it all through the night, and I will have so much fun, and you will be so annoyed at me by the time it's over. So I've learned to stop doing that a little bit. And then some of you are like, no, you haven't, David, and you're still doing it. <laughs> Another part about being an ENTP means I'm a visionary, which means I see something in the future, and I form this beautiful picture of it. And I'm like, that's where we got to go. And then I work backwards to find all of these strategies and all of these ways and all these goals to hit in order to get to this big, beautiful vision. And I get so excited about it. And then I'll work tirelessly at it. And it's like all the time exciting for me and probably exhausting for my wife, but it doesn't matter for me. I got to keep going. But I think she, like, you love this a little bit about me, right, Elise? Like, sorry, I'm drawing attention to her. Don't look at her right now. Um, <laughs> And, and so, so that's a little bit of me. And then here's a little bit of part of me, and I promise I'll be done about me in a second here. There's another profile called the Strength Finder. And two of them, one of them is called Significance, which means I want to do something that has like a significant value. We could add some value into the world. 
And also another one is achiever, which means I want to go and achieve something. So give me like something open. Like there's no rules here. Just go and build something and I'm excited. All right. Now let's look at my soul a little bit. So if it's true that we all want love and deep admiration, here's how this plays out in my life. I think that that goal that's in the distance, if I could achieve that, then I'm worthy to be loved. Then I should be admired maybe. And I'm just trying to convince everyone in the whole world that if I hit that, I'm worthy of love. And, and let me tell you what this is. It's a kingdom that comes easily crumbling down. It's a glass castle that breaks with a hammer and a nail. And the kingdom of God is built with a hammer and a nail and a cross. And so there's always going to be someone who will achieve more than me. There's always going to be someone who will disapprove of me. It's just a really bad kind of way to build a kingdom as opposed to the kingdom of God. So this prayer, your kingdom come, is saying, I'm done. My empire, gone. I want to build your kingdom because this doesn't work. And, you know, you never really know it doesn't work until it keeps failing you over and over again. You've got some hope that it's going to. So one of the best things God can do for you is let your kingdom crumble. So you'll finally go to him. It's a kingdom that's everlasting. It can't come down ever. And so you pray this prayer and you say, I'm done. And this prayer will hurt you. Because it leads to a loss that brings a greater gain. Because when you pray your kingdom come, what you're doing is you're saying, oh, you're my king. And, you know, in, in the kingdom of God, this is not about a democracy. He's king. And so what it means is that every single thing that you have is his. It belongs to him. And so you take your house, your, your bank account, bless you, bless you, your, your car, your investments, your status, your everything, and you say, God, it's yours. Do with it whatever you want. I want to build your kingdom. And you know what he does? He gives it right back to you, and he says, build away. And then he takes all of your skills, all of your talents, and, and, and you, here's what you say to him. God, take them. They are yours. I want to build your kingdom. And he gives them back to you, and he says, build. See what's happening? You have to experience a loss of your own kingdom so that he can give everything back to you and then give you the gain of his kingdom. Because now your heart's been changed. You've given up on this kingdom that you so want to build and you begin to build his. And, and the prayer is on earth as it is in heaven. So it's not just in your heart, the kingdom, not just in your home, not just in the church, but out over all the earth. And do you know what God has given to build the kingdom in the world? The church. 
The church is like the outpost of the kingdom of God. Now, I'm not going to pretend like the church has not failed in a lot of ways in America today. I'm not going to pretend that. But still, the hope is the church because Christ is the king of the church and he's head over the church. And so what that means is the, the church is the outpost of the kingdom of God. And remember, we said the good life, we have this vision of what it is, but God has a different vision. And so that means within the church... It means it's a collective group of people who have abandoned their own vision for the good life and have adopted the vision that God has given them. They've abandoned their own vision of what the church should be, and they're saying, God, you tell us what the church should be, and then we'll go and be it. And then more specifically, each church, the Grove is a unique church. We have our own little way of bringing the kingdom of God in this place. It's like a Grover-type way where we're trying to be believers and skeptics who have authentic community and honest conversations about faith and doubt. And, you know, what you'll find in the Grove is we don't have a lot of programs because programs will take a lot of time for you. And so what we say is let's let's make everything as simple as possible so that you can see ministry happening out there in your workplace, in your homes, in your neighborhoods. In fact, well, this is just something, this doesn't mean we're doing, this doesn't mean it's the right way, it means it's a way. So we're not really busy during Christmas time at our church. In fact, we're less busy. So you could be with your family, so you could be with your friends, and so you could bring the light of Christ out into the world wherever it is that you are. It's just different. It's the way we're doing it. So we just do it and bring the kingdom of God. And so then you ask yourself, what's your part? In all of this. Like, what's your responsibility? And I'm, I'm talking a little bit, yes, about the Grove, but I'm talking more about what's your responsibility to bring the kingdom of God wherever it is that you are going off to. Like, see what you're able to carry. See what you're made of. Okay, what do I mean by that? Well, let's move to our third point. His will, not yours. I want to read to you a quote from Elizabeth Elliot that I read last week, but we have to do it again. And she says, God will not save you from anything that will make you more like Christ. God won't save you from anything that will make you more like Christ. In other words, there's a crossroads before you. And one path is the will of God, and the other path is your will. And on... God's path, it is a narrow road, and it's difficult. There's trials ahead on that road, but your will is the easy path, the carefree path. And I want you to know, I'm going to mess with your prayers right now. Probably more than you realize, your prayers go like this. God, can you make my life like this? Can you give me the easy road without knowing you're doing it? You're doing it. God, give me that road because I like that road. And God loves you too much to answer that prayer. And he says, no, my will for you is the narrow road. And that road is going to squeeze in on you tight. And things are going to begin to happen in your life. Like, like, there's a lot of promises to people that your life will get better when you're a Christian. But it doesn't seem that way by what Christ says. In fact, if the road is narrow, it's going to squeeze in on you. It's going to be a harder road. There's going to be trials ahead that you wouldn't have had if you had taken the easy road. But his will is that you take the hard road. And upon that road, you will meet him in a way you have never met before. Because you're going to get to this place to where you say this. 
I have carried as much weight on this road as I can, and it's now too much for me, and I can't go on without you. And so you cry out in dependence on God, and he comes and he meets you on the road. And he, the, the, when it's squeezing at you, he comes and, and like he's of, he, he has so much glory. For something to be glorious means it has weight to it. So he's so weighty that he pushes the things of the world off of you and the trials off of you, and he gives you strength through the road. So too many of your prayers are, God, deliver me from this road. But what God is going to do is not deliver you from the road, but from deliver you from the dangers and the evil on the road. And that is a very different thing. I'm part of this philosophy group that meets once a month. And uh, a few months back, we were, we were talking about war. And a woman, and the topic turned to young men and war and how young men are just, they want to fight. And so they go out and they'll do whatever they're told to go out into this battle. And so, so she said, I think young men are foolish. They drive recklessly and they put a whole bunch of people's lives in danger by doing this. And yes, maybe young men are a bit foolish. But maybe the real problem is we haven't directed them of where they need to be dangerous. Here's what I mean by this. We're all, and this is what I said in response to what she said, Young men are practicing bravery because them and all of us really, we're, we're hoping that at some point we find a truth that is worth living and dying for. And if we find it, we better have the bravery needed to live and die for that truth. So we practice into doing it. And the will of God is sending you down a road that you don't want to go and it requires bravery to go down it. And every single day there's a crossroads and God's will is saying, take the hard, narrow road. It's gonna be difficult and you're not gonna make it unless you rely on him all the way through it. So when you pray, your will be done. What you're praying is give me the narrow road and I don't wanna walk it alone. So be with me, be my savior through it. And if you can begin to pray this prayer, like, not my glory, yours, not my kingdom, yours, not my will, but yours, you will begin to life, live a life that is absolutely fully alive, that is filled with meaning and purpose and substance. How are you going to do it, though? How are you going to actually authentically pray this prayer? And here is the answer of how you become this type of person. You have to understand, when Jesus said for us to pray this way, he had to have been thinking of the cross. Because he knows, Philippians tells us this, the book of Philippians, it says that he laid his glory aside, and he laid his crown aside, and he submitted not to his own will, but to the will of the Father. And in doing that, he lost his glory, he lost his kingdom, and he lost his will. But then Philippians goes on and says that he has now been exalted as a name above every name. And all of the earth will bow to him because of it. Do you understand what's just happened? You, when it says he laid his glory aside, part of that means it's his, the love and admiration that he has always had between the Father. And on the cross, he lost the Father's love and admiration when he wore our sins. 
And in doing that, he stepped into our place and says, you take all of my love and admiration. It's for you. Enjoy it forever. He lost his kingdom to give us the good life. Like he literally lost everything, went down into the depths of hell so we can have the good life. And then he rose to take us there. In the garden, he prays to the Father, let this cup pass from me, but your will be done. So he drank the cup of the cross and he endured. You see, he was stripped of everything, but because of it, he's exalted. And the same thing is true for you. Your life is a calling through the cross. And you can't handle the cross on your own. Christ has to go there first. He's not your example. He's your savior. But you follow him as your savior right up to the cross. And you're stripped of everything. You're stripped of your kingdom. You're stripped of your glory. You're stripped of your will. But by doing that, you gain so much more. You enter into his glory, into his kingdom, and into his will. And he makes you the type of person who can walk through your own cross into the resurrection because he's got you and he's not letting you go. So he's the one that did it. But in a way, it's because you've united yourself to him. So you've done it too, but only because he's done it. So be stripped of everything. And then you'll be the person that brings heaven to earth. Let's pray. Father, help us see that loss leads to gain. Help us to trust you, to trust you, Lord Jesus, that when we give you everything, you give us so much more. But let us see things not as the prize, but you as our great prize, as the great telos of our life, the great end the reason that we live, move, and have being, the reason we take every breath is for you, to seek you, to find you, to enjoy you, to be found by you, and then to see your name known. In our homes, in our neighborhoods, our workplaces, our churches, our world. In Jesus' name we pray. Thank you for listening to the Grove Church Message Podcast. Like us on your favorite podcast provider, follow our social media at the Grove Church Official, and check out our website, thegrovechurch.co.